Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Eric Lures. And it's February 15th, 2018. On this week's show, we get stoked about Black Panther, the most underappreciated job on set, a game-changing camera partnership, an Ask No Film School question that pits red against Alexa, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, and indie film releases. Hello out there, and welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And I'd like to start by wishing my co-hosts a happy Valentine's Day, which it is today as we record. Luckily, by the time you hear this, it will all be over in a distant, distant memory. But I I hope you had a good one. I hope you guys went to uh, IHOP or Taco Bell and celebrated it like the way it should be celebrated. Or you watched uh, romantic and or horror movies, whatever is your purview. So speaking of big movies... Obviously, there's a pretty super huge movie coming out this Friday, which we will get into uh, a little bit more extensively later on in the episode. But of course, we're talking about Black Panther, which is the 18th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I just wanted to do a quick report on a few newsy items that are surrounding the film rather than about the film itself. Uh, Also, shout out to director Ryan Coogler, who uh, on the day that we're recording this episode is just about a block or two away from presenting the film tonight at BAM in front of a sold-out audience at the several-hundred-seat BAM Harvey Theater. Hey, Ryan. All right. He can probably hear us. He'll stop by. Uh, The first news item concerns the music video for Kendrick Lamar's All the Stars, which is a single off of his new album for the Black Panther soundtrack. As the New York Times reports, Christopher Robinson, a lawyer for the British Liberian artist Lena Iris Victor, had sent a letter to Mr. Lamar's mentor and label head, Anthony Tiffith, at Top Dog Entertainment, alleging a copyright violation of the 24-karat gold patterned artworks in her series of paintings called Constellations. Miss Victor had been contacted twice by the film's creators for permission to feature her work in the music video, but she had decided not to participate. The infringement of Miss Victor's rights is willful and egregious, the letter says, adding that the artist is willing to discuss a resolution of all her claims, consisting at a minimum of a public apology for the unauthorized use and a license fee. Mr. Lamar, Mr. Tiffith, and Disney declined to comment. Now, the biggest issue that I kind of see with this was that Kendrick Lamar's team can't really plead ignorance here as they apparently did reach out twice before, asking for Victor's permission to incorporate her paintings into the video. And when they didn't get it, they went ahead with it anyway. So I feel like that would really cause some serious issues. I thought this was really interesting and, and, you know, really unfortunate story around such a positive movie and and so much um, positive things going on with it. Because, you know, the film celebrates African culture and this is a, you know, half Liberian artist whose work was ripped off for uh, one of the music videos associated with the film. Um, So I hope that they figure out a way to uh, repair it. I don't know if you guys saw the pictures, but the images of her original artwork next to the video are really striking. Like, there's no way they can sort of get around the fact that they ripped off the work. On the other hand, hip-hop culture is all about, you know, remixing other people's artwork. So I feel like there is some kind of gray line there. Did she just ignore them or did she respond saying no? She said no, she declined to participate, and then they just used her work anyway. Mm. It was kind of rough. 
That being said, uh, if you're interested in the soundtrack itself, regardless of this music video, it's now available on Spotify and it is a hotness. I have been listening to it nonstop. It's so good. In more optimistic, positive news brought about by Black Panther uh, is the rise of the GoFundMe campaign, which goes by hashtag Black Panther Challenge. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this campaign, it started a few days to a week ago, and it was designed to get kids to the movies to see Black Panther. It's as simple as that, really. Uh, As GoFundMe reveals, after raising over $40,000 on GoFundMe to take Harlem children to see Black Panther in theaters, New York resident Frederick Joseph, 29, years of age, which I just want to call out just to make myself feel less productive at 30, uh, (laughs) launched the Black Panther Challenge, calling on others to start a GoFundMe in their communities to take more kids to see the film in a theater. To date, over 400 GoFundMes have raised over $400,000 for this campaign, helping thousands of kids see the movie this month. Donations have come in from all 50 states and 40 countries around the world. All children deserve to believe they can save the world, go on exciting adventures, or accomplish the impossible. I am grateful that all of you have answered the call and are taking action to help more kids watch their heroes on the big screen, said Frederick Joseph. Let's keep pushing forward. If you're a teacher, buy tickets for your entire classroom. If you're a coach, take your team. If you're a community leader, do some organizing and get the kids and parents in your community to the theater. So with over $400,000 already raised for this campaign, there will be a lot of children going to see Black Panther uh, this weekend and throughout the month of February. I remember reading something about this or something similar, and I was like, they should have just bought all those kids' movie passes instead Mm. (laughs) because then they could go see every movie they wanted to for a year which would have been awesome but you know i don't know maybe that wouldn't work out logistically in terms of uh matching the amounts of funds raised but that would be a cool idea start a gofundme for kids to get movie pass accounts and i will say if you have as i do a movie pass account wanting to see black panther this weekend I feel like you're kind of out of luck because most of the screenings will be sold out. Yeah, because or... all these pesky do-gooders bought tickets for children. Yeah, so like if I'm but... even close enough to the theater, it's not going to – and I have to be within like 100 feet or something. Uh, most tickets will be gone, I assume, for the next week or two weeks or so. So MoviePass kind of requires you to sit it out the original opening weekend. You could just go really early to the theater and buy a ticket and then leave if you wanted to. I was wondering about that because I was going to do the same thing for a film tonight. I was going to go by today. And then I looked on the MoviePass site and said that your like window is only good for two hours after you choose your ticket. Have you, have you done it like early I've before? done it. I mean, like oh. unless that's a new thing. Um, I did it a few weeks ago because I, was, I wanted to go see Phantom Thread and 70mm at the Alamo Draft House. And I knew that those tickets were pretty hot. So I went in during lunch one day, um, and I just went and looked and saw what seats they had for the 7 o'clock show. It was like 2 o'clock. Got them, and then ended up not going to the movie because I was too tired. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm going to look into it because I wonder if they have changed it. I didn't waste those tickets, though. I gave them to a friend. So. Oh, good. That's good. Well, it's nice to see kids having a reason to go to the theater. Granted, I don't like going to theaters with a lot of kids. But I'm glad that this initiative is happening. So, <laughs> so Eric, if someone wanted to contribute to this, they just go to GoFundMe.com and look for the Black Panther Challenge, or how does it yes. work? Yes, yep. So you would use the hashtag Black Panther Challenge, and that is the overall um, name of the 
uh, campaign, but there are many going on in different communities as well. So use GoFundMe, do a search for that hashtag, and then you'll see it in different communities and different bases throughout the country. It started as a Harlem initiative, but it's now gone across the world. How lovely. So on NoFilmSchool.com, we've often referred to some of the less acknowledged below-the-line craftspeople in our field with articles like, why the costume designer is the most underappreciated person on set. But a story from this week made me think about who really are the most underappreciated. So some hints. There are around 800 of them in New York City, and until Monday, they were the only group of workers in the film and TV industry who were not unionized. I'm talking about parking production assistants. I don't know if any of you have ever done this job, but these folks have it rough. To secure parking in the New York City area for production vehicles and equipment, they usually have to arrive 12 to 24 hours prior to the shoot and work all night alone, outside, or like in their own cars, usually without access to a bathroom and frequently in unsafe situations. Listen, if you've ever tried to stop a New Yorker from parking, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The New York Times reported about their conditions a couple years ago, noting a 58-year-old parking PA who'd taken to wearing adult diapers after developing an enlarged prostate while on the job because he could never leave the spot to go to the bathroom. And most other people involved with the production never even see these folks. So that's probably part of why it's easy for the productions to take them for granted and systematically underpay them. Hopefully, things should now start to change, as the parking production assistants in New York City voted unanimously on Monday to join the Communications Workers of America Local 1101. There were actually six separate elections for parking production assistants employed by ABC, CBS, NBC TV, NBC Cable, HBO, and Sony, and every single one voted yes to unionizing. So we'll see if this sets a trend for other cities, and meanwhile, please treat everyone on your sets fairly. It's better for you, and it's better for the industry. And now, on to more awards, awards, awards! It's not February without him. The Writers Guild Prizes were handed out last weekend without any major surprises. Film is actually only recognized in three categories here, as opposed to more than 20 for TV. And those film awards went to Jordan Peele for Best Original Screenplay for Get Out, James Ivory for Best Adapted Screenplay for Call Me By Your Name, which was based on the novel by Andre Asimov, and to Brett Morgan for his documentary screenplay for Jane. Interestingly, James Ivory was a first-time WGA nominee at age 89, though he received a trio of Oscar nominations for directing The Remains of the Day, Howard's End, and A Room with a View. So these awards can be predictors of the best screenplay at the Oscars, but this year Martin McDonough's screenplay for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri was ineligible for the WGA award, and it is up for an Oscar, so we'll see how that plays out in a few weeks. Can't believe it's only a few weeks away. Is the Oscars usually in March? I feel like it's never been in March in my life, but maybe I'm just wrong. Um, I, I think thought, I always thought it was in February. For a while, going way back, they would do it as late as like first week of April or huh. late March, and then around I think 2002, 2003 is when they decided to cut down on like campaigning. So then nominations came out earlier, and then they were planning on doing it by yeah the 28th of February. Um, I kind of like the shortened season just because by this point, uh, we've... It doesn't feel short. It doesn't feel short at all because I think everything had to then shift. The Golden Globes are now the first week of January and everything then had to move earlier Mm. uh, due to this. Um, And just with Get Get Out, actually, speaking of free tickets to screenings, this Monday, February 19th for President's Day, uh, Universal is celebrating the one-year anniversary of Get Out being released in theaters by having... Uh, 
on a first come first serve basis, free tickets. They're going to put the film back in theaters for one day. Get out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, get out and see it um, with certain AMC theaters. So you can look online. Jordan Peele just tweeted about it this Monday. Free screenings of Get Out. One year that we've been even more than a year we've been talking about it since that surprise uh, Sundance premiere, and here it is still. Finally, in headlines, we'd like to say a sad goodbye to Icelandic composer Johan Johansson, who died last week at the age of 48. Johansson's movie soundtracks were celebrated. He won a Golden Globe in 2015, as well as Grammy and Academy Award nominations for his score for The Theory of Everything. And he was also nominated for an Oscar for scoring Denis Villeneuve's Sicario in 2015. He then was nominated for a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, and a Grammy for the soundtrack to Villeneuve's Arrival in 2016. I was struck by an anecdote on Twitter from fellow Icelandic musician Olafur Arnolds, who recalled that Johansson had been working on the score for Darren Aronofsky's 2017 film Mother for over a year. But after hearing his music played back with a rough cut of the picture, Johansson convinced Aronofsky to ditch the music altogether, eventually replacing his 90-minute piece with mostly silence and abstract sound design. Arnold said, It takes a real, selfless artist to do that, to realize the piece is better without you. Johansson also has solo albums of hauntingly beautiful electronica, so if you're into that kind of thing, check them out. Rest in peace, Johan Johansson, and thank you for the music. Interestingly, the last movie he scored was a movie I saw at Sundance. I'm not sure if I've told you guys about it. Um, it's called Mandy. And oh, it's Mandy. a really, really awesome soundtrack. Like, I was just—I was totally struck by it when I was watching it, and it was terrifying. It totally complemented the hallucinogenic feel of the piece, and also it was just so raw and metal that it was like didn't sound like it was coming from a composer. It sounded like it was licensed music from like a death metal band. Um, wow. It was really, really awesome. And so when I saw this news, I was just like, oh, God, why? I was looking forward to seeing more of his scores. And now that I knew him or was like more well aware of his work, but uh, oh well. It seems like he was really hitting his stride in his career in these last few years. What a shame. And having a good relationship, yeah, with Villeneuve. I've been listening to The Arrival score uh this week i feel like you kind of go back when someone passes and mm-hmm. listens and mm-hmm. heptapod b is a great one and now here's charles hayne with the gear news for the week thank you john so first up some big gear news that doesn't have a lot of details yet but could be super exciting foxconn who you might know as the manufacturer behind many products you love including of course the iphone has announced a partnership with red digital cinema their goal is to bring an 8K prosumer camera to the market for one-third the current price, which, considering the fact that the current 8K Helium is a $30,000 package, would mean under 10000 although my guess would be maybe even 7500 to compete with, like, EVA1, Blackmagic Ursa Mini, FS7 territory. Um, no word on timeline, but this would be huge, especially since... This would bring one of the biggest benefits of RED technology, their proprietary RED Code RAW R3D codec, to the mass market. 8K video files are really difficult to work with, um, but RED Code makes it a lot easier. Uh, I've fired up RED Code files on my laptop, and thinking about like other camera technologies where even sometimes their 4K files can be sluggish, uh, bringing that RED Code to a mass market could be super exciting. And I think Foxconn has the infrastructure and experience in that volume to do it. 
So the combo of the two could be really fascinating. It's also sort of a nice follow-up on Red showing up in the Apple store, which, I mean, Apple is the iPhone and has that relationship with Foxconn. So there's a lot of, like, overlap here, which makes it uh, pretty cool, and I'm excited to see the results of it. Uh, Next up, Sennheiser has released their new G4 transmitters and receivers. So Sennheiser is up there. I mean, they might be the biggest in wireless audio. I mean, there's also Electrosonics and Rode and others. But Sennheiser is super dominant. You see them everywhere, especially on indie shoots. And uh, like I own a set of the G3s. I use them on shoots all the time. I also use them on my wedding. So like I trust their reliability, even in... um, a super important uh, no repeats, no second takes kind of day. And um, what's nice about them is they're reliable, they're super compact, everybody knows how to use them. The G4 are an evolution of the G3s. There's slightly different body, but they're really designed on evolving the platform and expanding it with a few ease-of-use improvements, 1,200 new frequency options, Uh, which are going to make it easier for filmmakers to find a clear channel when they need one, especially in busy RF markets. If you've ever tried to find a clear channel like NAB, for instance, I remember the camera operator last year when we were making NAB videos, we were using Sennheisers and we had to constantly be searching for new RF because there were so many frequencies. So maybe this year if there are G4s around, we'll try and take G4s and use some of the new 1200 frequencies. Um, Best of all, they remain backward compatible with the G3s, so you don't have to sell off your old kit. So if you get, like, a new G4 transmitter, you can still use your old G3 receiver, although obviously not with the new bandwidth. While we don't normally give a lot of coverage to leaks, sometimes there's a leak that is exciting enough or likely enough to mention, and we will mention it. And that's the case this week with the new X-H1 from Fujifilm. It should be officially announced sometime today, the 15th, but... uh, Some very official-looking images and specs leaked over the weekend and show that Fuji is moving after video users with their mirrorless platform. Uh, So Panasonic did this with the GH5S, and Sony obviously were the innovators here with the A7S, making a mirrorless camera, but instead of tailoring it towards the needs of a photographer, tailoring it for a filmmaker. So usually they have to give up some resolution, but then they'll focus on low light and other features that f- filmmakers really need. And it in the balancing act of what features to include, they make the filmmaker-friendly version. With the X-H1, we get a doubling of the bitrate in the 4K. It's going from 100 megabits to 200 megabits, which will be huge. We're going to get a five-axis image stabilization. And that's going to be really interesting since that's something that Panasonic dropped from the GH5 to make the GH5S. And we're also going to get internal log recording, whereas like previously with the X-T2, you had to go out to get log on a recorder. So, of course, the GH5S is probably going to be a little better than the X-H1 in low light because both the GH5S and the A7S are such low light monsters. But we're excited to see another mirrorless, like, inexpensive option for filmmakers. It's going to be about $500 cheaper than either the Sony or the Panasonic's, which is a bonus. And uh, we'd be excited to see this camera even if we weren't already such X-T2 fans. Last up, two quick stories. First off, there's a cool new, like, it's not a toy. It's kind of a tool or a plug-in. It's a, it's a package of images. It's called Film Set Objects, and it's a collection of pre-drawn PNG images of all your favorite set tools. So when you're making like a previs, then you want to show like, I'm going to put a flag over here. I'm going to put my camera over here. 
it's like a nice looking flag picture and not like some scribble you make. And it's like a camera that looks like a camera. And it's going to help you communicate with your team members. If you ever have to show previs to client, it's going to help with that. It's going to help when you're teaching. It's it's very cool. Check it out. Uh, in addition to that, one last little quickie. Last week, we covered the new Alexa LF. And then last weekend, we got to see it in person at an Able Cine event here in Brooklyn. And you can see the seams on the sensor. Apparently, you could also see the seams on the sensor in the Alexa 65. Did everybody know that? Because I didn't know that. Uh, I'd never looked at an Alexa 65 sensor. But I've now seen the Alexa LF sensor. And if you hold a flashlight on it, you can see the seam running up and down on the sensor, which is crazy. It really is just two Alexa sensors. And they turned them upright and smushed them together. You don't see the seam in the images. It's not like there's a line running down the image like Cinerama. But you can see the seam in the sensor. Um, and we had to talk about that. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Are you sticking around for No Film School this week, Charles? You mean Ask No Film School? Yeah, is that what I... Yeah, that's probably what I mean. Yes, I'm, I'm here to answer the Ask No Film School question. Great, well then I should probably ask it. So this week, Gustavo Gonzalez asks... I'm in pre-pro on my second short film, and my DP offered up an option to rent a red Epic Helium or an Alexa Mini. The Alexa is a bit more per day, and from what I've heard and heard, the Mini is a lot better overall. What are your thoughts on the Helium? Is it worth it? Does it look too crisp and not that cinematic? If so, would I be better off going with something like the C500 in that case? Is the Alexa Mini that much better than the Helium? Well, Charles, this is a tasty and specific question. This is it. Tasty and specific. Hear that, folks? You want to get your question asked on the podcast, go for tasty and specific, uh, which would be really – that is actually like, yeah, it is tasty. Um, Gustavo, that is indeed the million-dollar question, right? And it's by no means an easy one. But for me, there are three big factors I consider when making this kind of decision, and that's budget, time, and experience. So obviously, as the last few weeks of coverage has shown, Alexa is super dominant with 90 projects at Sundance being shot on Airy, more than triple the second place finisher. Uh, People love it. John Fusco loves it. It looks great. It generally costs a little more. So how do we decide if it's worth it to pay that little more? Here we go. In terms of budget, the first thing is how much of a deal breaker is the extra cost? So like, let's say the Alexa Mini is 200 a day more. Can you just eat that 200 a day and, like, live on beans for a while? Or is it like, nope, that 200 a day isn't impossible? If the money's not a big deal, totally go for Alexa. It's the most expensive one for a reason. But remember, usually we have a fixed cost we're deciding to do a project with. Like, I have $10,000 to shoot this weekend or whatever. And if that extra money on the Alexa is like, oh, well, because of that, you can't run a generator or you can't get the 4K that you wanted to light your big night exterior and instead you're doing your big night exterior on a 1.8K, well, that's not worth it, right? The Alexa is more popular and has nice color reproduction, but you also need the right lenses, the right lighting, and the right sets. So, like, for instance, I'd rather shoot the perfect set with the perfect wardrobe and the perfect cast on a Helium than shoot, like, a shitty set with terrible wardrobe that doesn't work right and an unhappy cast because they haven't been fed on an Alexa. So if you can afford both the good set and the good wardrobe and the Alexa, go Alexa. But if Alexa means you can't afford good production design, go Helium. Get the production design. The next factor is time. So Alexa is just faster. 
Red takes more time in color grades because you've got to tweak your skin tones more. If it does come in too sharp, you've got to find selective ways to soften it. You can almost always get the helium to look as good as the Alexa, but it takes more time. If nothing else, the transcodes take longer. So if you have a tight turnaround on this short, if you're trying to make a deadline, Alexa all the way. If you have the time, helium can be a smart move since you can make it look amazing in post if you take the time. My final key is experience. So if I were hiring a DP who'd shot their last 12 projects on Alexa and had never shot red, I'd find the money for Alexa. These platforms take time to get to know intimately and have surprising quirks. So having a DP who knows a platform well is key. The DP you're talking to, maybe they're a red expert and they want to add Alexa to their reel, but they've never shot Alexa before. Do you want to be the project they're learning Alexa on? Or if they've spent the last five years shooting everything on the red and they know it intimately and they know all the tricks to make it look basically as good as the Alexa, maybe you save the money. There's a lot of variables here that you have to decide for yourself. Overall, you can get amazing footage from both cameras, and there are many, many shows that use like Alexa for ACAM and Helium for action and slow-mo, and they make it intercut, and they make it work, and they get beautiful footage out of both. So hopefully, uh, some of those factors we just discussed will help you make a decision for what's right for your project. Yeah, and you, you touched on you know the decision of buying the lenses in conjunction with the camera, or I mean renting more yeah. likely uh and i think you know that is just as important of a decision as like the body of the camera itself is. oh it's huge so like you need to be and those lenses can cost a lot too yeah. depending on what you go with so maybe there's a way to you know make that red footage look like more along what you want it to look like. It looks. It sounds like you don't want it to look sharp. You want it to look more cinematic. So maybe you can rent some Cook S4s, which are very famously like creamy romantic lenses, and you pair them up with the red, and the combo looks great, say. Yeah, like, like look into more vintage options too rather than like newer options, and maybe you can find a way to replicate that if it's if it's better for your budget. He said that his DP had a red that he could use for free in no, this situation? No, he was putting through the DP. I think what it sounded like to me was the DP was putting through like, hey, we have this rental option for Helium for 500 a day or the Alexa for 700 a I day. I see. Okay. So when he said, my DP put through red and Alexa options and the Alexa's more, I think that's that was the sense I got. Yeah. You can also try and like barter with the rental house too in that situation, I guess. If you're, you know, this is like, if you're also producing the movie, you can go back and forth between uh, multiple rental houses and tell them you know you're thinking about going with this other option for five hundred dollars because it's cheaper but you know you'd be willing to spend an extra hundred bucks rather than an extra 200 bucks for this alexa and maybe the rental or house will like give you a little bit of a deal there i think that's definitely something to try why not also as we talked about a couple weeks ago alexa has not changed their sensor since 2010 so like if you're willing to shoot on a bigger body like you don't need to get the mini unless you're working on like an interior car shoot or something. Yeah, that's true. But I didn't I didn't use the mini on my short and so when we were going back and forth between the mini and the uh, older model, um, my DP brought up the point that like you really have to build up the mini to a point where it's just as big as the older model anyways when you're shooting on it. Yeah. Um and it wasn't really a question at that point of like uh, do we want to use the mini versus the older model? It was like, what rental house is giving us a better package here? Like, who's going to give us the lenses and the body that we need? If they're giving us a pretty similar price point on both sides, we're going to go with the house that has 
the better uh, lenses, honestly, in that case, because the body is pretty much the same. Um, Like you said, Charles, it's the same exact sensor. So well, and like the mini is great when you want to like, oh, I need to like stick it in the corner on this car shoot, and I'm going to be wirelessly monitoring it from another car, and like I want to put it up next by the windshield. But like once you've built, as John Steep said, once you've built it into like studio mode with like a viewfinder and a follow focus and a monitor for the first AC and like the whole party, yeah, it's not that much smaller. So going for like an Alexa Classic, uh, especially, I bet. I wonder, I need to look at ShareGrid. I wonder if now that the Alexa LF has been announced, when it starts shipping, Alexa Classic prices will probably come down. Yeah, who knows? It's definitely something to uh, put some time into researching. Um, and, you know, if you can keep, as Charles said, if you can keep your gear budget like as low as you can, uh, you really want to be spending that money on production design and things that will make your movie actually, like, feel as if it's in a part of a world um, rather than, you know, spending thousands and thousands of dollars on gear. Uh, ultimately, for my short, even though we used this high-end equipment, we ended up spending way more money <laughs> on the other aspects of the film. Um, and I think that's really important to think about. Oh, yeah, totally. I tell this anecdote all the time, but I know a guy who um, he, like, did an indie feature for, like, $30,000 and he he had to reshoot a scene in the end, and the reshoot cost him five grand. And the reason why is because he had a distributor who was like, "I like your whole movie, but that one scene where that guy's wearing a wig, it's terrible." And like he could have saved five thousand dollars if he just paid a little more for a better wig. But he used like a you know whatever ninety nine cent store wig that wasn't meant to be a joke. He just should have paid the five hundred dollars for the wig person, and he wouldn't have had to reshoot that scene. And he could have just sold the movie the first time. So like. What's in front of the lens is so important, and uh, people get a lot distracted by what's behind the lens sometimes. That's a great anecdote. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. I will see you guys all next week. So moving on to some movie openings. A film I really enjoyed from Tribeca last year is coming to VOD. It's called Holy Air, and it's written, directed by, and starring Palestinian filmmaker Shadi Sroor. Despite the political complexities involved, the movie is actually a very wry comedy about an Arab Christian in the Israeli-Arab city of Nazareth who decides to try to turn his family's fortune around by selling bottled holy air to Christian tourists. The premise of the film and all the hoops the character has to jump through are hilarious, but the backstory is really fascinating. Schroer worked on the film for 11 years and pulled together an international crew and financing that's that's pretty rare for the region. He had a Jewish-Israeli producer and a French-Lebanese lead actress who didn't speak Arabic, which is the language of the film, but he knew that she was right for the role, so he trained her two hours every day for three months over Skype, basically to speak Arabic according to the script. So look out for the movie. It's worth seeing how they kind of pulled it all off in the end. And also coming to VOD on February 16th is a movie called Looking Glass. This is a new film from Tim Hunter. And Hunter is perhaps best known for his breakthrough film River's Edge, which won Best Feature and Best Screenplay at the Indie Spirit Awards and the Special Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival all the way back in 1986. Since then, he's made a handful more features, but really hit his niche in TV, directing for pretty much every hit show that's ever aired. Shows like Twin Peaks, House, Breaking Bad, Deadwood, Mad Men, Dexter, Nip Tuck, American Horror Story, Gotham, Hannibal, Riverdale, and literally everything in between. Wow. Hunter's new film, Looking Glass, stars Nicolas Cage, who was also in this other movie. Um, Brandy. 
No. Was that oh. Sandy? Actually. I think it was Candy. It's this movie called Adaptation. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> haven't heard yeah, of it. There was Spike two Jones. Nicolas Cages in that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyways, Nicolas Cage in this one plays a man who must save his wife and himself from a gruesome secret connected to a motel and the strange people who visit there. Sounds cool. I should mention that we will have interviews with Shadi Sroor from Holy Air and Tim Hunter from Looking Glass up on the site this week, if all goes well. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant is a movie from a director who we will not have an interview from, but is a very important independent film figure. Logan Lucky is hitting Amazon on February 16th. This is Steven Soderbergh's latest film, which uh, is his first movie since announcing his retirement from film. His last movie was Behind the Candelabra, (laughs) which uh, was an HBO movie. Soderbergh has always been famous for shaking up the system, and this film was no different. The film was distributed by Cutting Out Studios in order to have creative control and make money directly from the film itself. Accordingly, for this atypical distribution, Steven Soderbergh raised the budget by selling off foreign distribution rights and then sold everything except the movie showing up in a movie theater in order to pay for advertising and prints of the movie. For example, he sold post-theatrical rights to the likes of HBO, Netflix, VOD, television, airplanes, and Amazon. By following these two steps, Soderbergh was able to sidestep a Hollywood studio and had creative control the entire time. For instance, the trailers that dropped earlier last summer were by his design, as was the poster and the entire marketing plan. Also, according to Soderbergh, under this setup, the box office bar for success is lower. With nearly everything prepaid and no hefty distributor fees coming off the top, even a modest $15 million opening would be a win. His gamble paid off as the film was critically lauded upon its release last summer. Logan Lucky tells the story of two brothers who attempt to pull off a heist during a NASCAR race in North Carolina. The brothers are played by Channing Tatum and Adam Driver, who ask for assistance from a con man named Joe Bang, played by Daniel Craig. If you ever wanted to see Daniel Craig attempt to do a southern accent, then this is the movie for you. It also stars Katie Holmes and Riley Keough. Did you guys see it? Yeah, I saw it. It was fun. Yeah, I thought it was all right. I'll reserve my opinion, as I normally do. <laughs> this next one is coming out next month, right? Unsane? Yeah. That one's coming yeah. out. Oh, the iPhone recently. movie. No, the iPhone movie is... Mosaic. Mosaic. Which is... They're all out. coming out around... That came out already, right? Yeah. Okay. No, the, the I, I mean the one that was shot with iPhone is Unsane. Oh, that might Mosaic be Mosaic is the one that plays out on the on iPad On an iPad. Oh, okay. okay. Can't keep it straight with this guy. This, this guy has so many projects and they're all so <laughs> confusing. He's all innovative all the time. <laughs> So we talked about it earlier on the show, but this week marks the uh, release of maybe, I I was going to say 2018's biggest superhero movie, but Infinity Wars is coming out later this year, and that's also a massive one uh, just by scale. Black Panther is hitting theaters on Friday, February 16th. Woo! So to say the film is hotly anticipated is somewhat of an understatement. When tickets went on sale back in January... Black Panther broke Fandango's pre-sale ticket record for Marvel Cinematic Universe films in its first 24 hours, a record previously held by 2016's Captain America Civil War. It has since broken the ticket pre-sale record for all superhero movies, beating the previous one set by Batman vs. Superman, Dotem Justice. A stupid movie. (laughs) Sorry, I'll reserve my opinion on that one. People seem most excited about the prospect of this being a new kind of superhero movie, and it's certainly broken ground as the most diverse. 
The cast is almost entirely made up of black actors, and of course, the film's director, Ryan Coogler, has made some of the freshest films concerning the African diaspora in recent history. It's also breaking ground due to its indie roots, however. Ryan Coogler insisted on bringing in collaborators from his previous films to put his own stamp on the film and differentiate it from the other MCU films that he felt were, quote, shot, composed, and edited by the same house people. Coogler brought in cinematographer Rachel Morrison, production designer Hannah Beechler, and composer Ludwig Göransson, who all worked with him on Fruitvale Station. It also marks the director's third collaboration with Michael B. Jordan after Fruitvale Station and Creed. The film picks up after the events of Captain America Civil War. Black Panther returns home to the reclusive, technologically advanced African nation of Wakanda to serve as his country's new leader. However, he soon finds that he is challenged for the throne from factions within his own country. It stars Chadwick Bosman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Daniel Kaluuya, Sterling K. Brown, Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker, Andy Serkis, Martin Freeman, and more. We actually have an interview with the film's DP, Rachel Morrison, about her work on this year's Oscar-nominated film Mudbound, which you can read on the site. Now for upcoming grant deadlines and events. First, we have SF Film Westridge Development Grant, which is open through February 23rd. A new fund from SF Film, this initiative supports the development of narrative feature films that tackle important issues of our time, and they will dole out four to five grants of up to $25,000, among other benefits. In addition to financial support, recipients receive a range of benefits through SF Film's comprehensive and dynamic artist development programs, as well as support and feedback from SF Film and Westridge Foundation staff. The SF Film Westridge Grant is open to U.S.-based filmmakers whose stories take place in the United States. All grantees will spend one week in the Bay Area attending a programmed retreat geared towards honing the craft, strengthening their scripts, and making connections to other filmmakers and industry professionals. Travel and accommodation for the retreat will also be provided. We also have SF Film's Rain-In Filmmaking Grant, which is also due on February 23rd. If you plan to tackle a social justice issue in a meaningful and creative way, you should apply to this grant from the largest granting body for independent narrative feature films in the United States. Development and post-production grants can be up to $25,000, with production grants at around $75,000, in addition to other support like the six-month film house residency. And to tie it all together, Fruitvale Station was one of the early recipients of this grant. And the SF Film Rain-In Filmmaking Grants Program provides meaningful support to projects that benefit and uplift the Bay Area filmmaking community in a professional and economic capacity. The grant is open to filmmakers internationally whose films explore social justice and can commit to spending time developing the work in San Francisco, with a priority given to Bay Area-based filmmakers. Post-production funding is now open to films without Bay Area spending, but that exemplify the strongest social justice storytelling. And there's also the SF Film Rain-In Screenwriting Grant, which will also conclude February 23rd. If you plan to tackle a social justice issue in a meaningful and creative way, you should apply to these grants as well, ranging between $10,000 and $25,000 to support writers to develop their screenplay in the Bay Area. And that includes also a two-month film house residency with peer and established mentorship engagement. Those SF film grants are some of the best opportunities out there right now, so definitely check them out. In the meantime, if your film is done, we've got some festival deadlines for you. 
Coming up on February 16th is the early bird deadline for Duck NYC, which takes place here in New York from November 8th to the 15th. It's an Academy Award qualifying event, and it's America's largest documentary festival. It takes place at some great venues like the West Village's IFC Center, Chelsea's SVA Theater, and Sinopolis Chelsea. And of course, it's been voted by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top five coolest documentary film festivals in the world. It also includes the fantastic Pitch Perfect Pitch event, where selected projects will be given 10 minutes to pitch, including trailer or clip, and 15 to 20 minutes of feedback from an industry panel as part of DocNYC's industry programming, DocNYC Pro. We always cover this festival here at No Film School, and it has a lot of resources to offer to its participating filmmakers and including an entire week-long professional conference. So if you've got a doc in the works, definitely apply. Off, the Odense Film Festival has a deadline on February 19th. This festival takes place August 27th to September 2nd, 2018 in Denmark. It's an international short film festival. Off's Grand Prix Award goes to the best film in the main competition, and the winner will receive a 4,700 euro prize. There are also a ton of other cash prizes for winners in other categories that you can check out on the site. All films with dialogue must have hard-coded English subtitles. If the language dialogue of the film is Danish or English, they do accept pre-screening versions of the film without subtitles. However, if the film is selected for competition, they require those subtitles in there. This award is Oscar qualifying. Napa Valley Film Festival has a deadline on February 23rd. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place November 7th to the 11th, 2018 in Napa Valley, California. The screening venues are clustered in walkable festival villages throughout the Napa Valley, and there's food and wine events in each festival village. They release approximately 100-plus new independent films, and there are sneak peeks of studio releases. The Meadowood Best U.S. Narrative Feature and Best U.S. Documentary Feature each get cash prizes of $10,000. Now on to wah-wah-wah. <laughs> that stands for weekly uh. words of wisdom. So earlier I mentioned the film Holy Air and how it was written, directed by, and starring Shadi Sror. So in our interview, I had asked him about juggling those roles. And I thought his answer, his answer was really interesting. He said, actually, I love the three of them, and each one of them is a different character. When I write, I write after 11 o'clock. I smoke. I don't care about myself or my shape. When I act, I have to eat good, so I go to the gym. Now, this is the problem that when I direct, I also love to work long, hard hours. So here I had to be an actor and a director, so I have to be in shape and work long hours. So it's not only the, the different roles he embodies, it's the actual characters in his scripts. Because he also said... For me to write, I live all the characters, even the female characters. When I write, I try to approach everybody's soul. I like taking my time, and I'm open to hear everybody. I'm open to listen. I thought that Shadi's take was a good reminder for me of how much empathy it can take to be a successful writer and director. In his case, he literally sees it as becoming various characters and on-set roles. So that's something I think we can all uh, think about when we're approaching whatever our role is on set. So the Santa Barbara Film Festival took place last week, and Christopher Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Guillermo del Toro, Jordan Peele, and Paul Thomas Anderson were all in attendance to be honored with the Outstanding Directors of the Year Award. So my weekly words of wisdom come from Paul Thomas Anderson, who, in the midst of all the festival panels and procedures, was confronted by a duo of bold middle schoolers from Santa Barbara Middle School Press. They seized an opportunity to interview PTA on the red carpet. 
Their video went semi-viral among the film nerd community because it's just PTA being the best, and he stopped and took a few minutes to thoughtfully answer their questions. Here are some great pieces of advice he shared with the extremely young filmmakers. Quote, I think that I do what I love, and I think I do it because I love it, Anderson explained when asked what he could attribute his success to. Quote, I just happen to be lucky enough to make money at it and get awards. I don't do it because of that. I do it because I need to, and it's important for me to do. He later added, work with your friends. That's what I say. That's a great tip, especially when you happen to be friends with Daniel Day-Lewis. Of which we all are. Yes. Friend of the program. Absolutely. Daniel Day-Lewis. Hey, Danny Day. After touring the festival circuit throughout 2017 with his short film, DeKalb Elementary, a film based on a real-life 911 call made during a thwarted school shooting attempt in Atlanta, Georgia, back in 2013, writer-director Reed Van Dyke found himself the recipient of an Oscar nomination for Best Live Action Short last month for the film. Congrats, Reed. Last week, I chatted with him on the site about making a film based on a potentially tragic phone call, I won't tell you how it ends, and how the film's first festival appearance brought attention and widespread benefits to the project that he's still reaping. I think it was right around August or September of 2016, Reed said, when I felt ready to start submitting the film, and so we sent it to Sundance and South by Southwest and Claremont Ferrand and Berlin. We targeted five or so of the bigger festivals happening within the first quarter of the year, and we hoped it would get in somewhere. Something I've since learned is that due to the film getting into Claremont Ferrand International Short Film Festival, which means a lot more in Europe than it does here in the States, a lot of other festival doors opened up. I only applied to maybe a half dozen festivals, and then everywhere it played since has happened via invitation or because they heard about the film after it played at Claremont or South By. Festival programmers would ask to see the film, and then they invited the film to their festival, or they didn't. My only strategy for the festival run were identifying that these festivals were great, and that I'd start applying to those and see what happens. Uh, So sometimes the best strategy to have is to not have too specific of a strategy, and keeping an eye out, as we mentioned earlier regarding our deadlines, about Oscar-qualifying festivals, uh, because that is worthwhile, but that's never the end goal. And Reed did not expect that to happen. He just chose wildly, wisely and was able to kind of gather fans of his work along the way. Cool. So if you happen to be in Europe, tonight marks the opening of the 68th annual Berlin International Film Festival, or Berlinale, which runs through February 25th. The opening night film is the premiere of Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, which we are all looking forward to seeing later this year. And uh, we'll actually have a writer on the ground there, and we'll bring you some more news from the festival next week. I'm going to be there? You're You're, sending me? I'm going to be on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Just just rolling around. You're sending us both to Berlin? Congratulations, you guys. We have a 7 o'clock fight. We're going to catch Black Panther. We're going to hop on the plane. (laughs) We're going to go to Berlin. We'll be back. We'll bring the kids. And Daniel Day-Lewis. Yep. Okay, and as soon as you get back, it'll be Monday. (laughs) So what's happening on Monday, John? Well, next Monday, we're going to talk about piercing. This is director Nicholas Pesh's sophomore feature after The Eyes of My Mother and the last movie he does before he goes on to direct a big studio reboot of The Grudge. It was also one of my favorite movies at Sundance. So I sat down with Pesh, Christopher Abbott, who I really think is one of the best actors out there today, and producer wunderkind Jake Wasserman, And we really honed in on what it's like to develop a tone and style in your story, which Nick is so good at doing in both The Eyes of My Mother and Piercing. Meanwhile, check us out 
on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you happen to be on iTunes, it helps us out a whole lot when you rate us and leave nice reviews. So thanks for doing that. Also, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Yes, Eric is on board. I'm, I'm so not, I'm excited. Being initiated, Everything's guys. fine. <sighs> Everything's just fine. And I'm at Eric Lures, but I'll be at Berlin by the time you hear this. He won't. Uh, Charles is at Charles Hain. We're all at No Film School and also at nofilmschool.com. You can catch everything we talked about on this episode. We'll link to all the wonderful opportunities and... There are new articles and original content about the craft of filmmaking every single day. So check it out. And until then, we will see you next Thursday.